This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Just because you're working out doesn't mean you shouldn't look fabulous. The Inspire Collection by Kalia was designed with both style and performance in mind. It looks good, feels good, and stays put no matter how you move. And the collection has everything you need for a day at the gym. A support bra, crop tanks, bike shorts, amazing leggings, and more. It's their most versatile collection yet. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. When I approached the Castrions with the idea of a documentary, they welcomed me into their tragedy with open arms. They didn't have to. Jeanette's mother, Lydia, gave me the warmest hug and thanked me for my work. During our interviews, sometimes she was triggered and cried often. Lydia is poised, graceful, and ladylike. Yet, you could see it in her face that she was suffering. The Castrions are the type of family you would want to be invited to Thanksgiving dinner by. They're kind, generous, cultured, yet very humble people. And so, this is the story of my struggles, too. Because even though I connect so well with Jeanette's family, objectively, I'm well aware that the story of how she disappeared makes little sense. During my interviews, I sometimes found myself apologizing to Jeanette's family for asking them probing questions. But early on, Eduardo told me, ask me anything, nothing is off limits. And so I did. From The Labyrinth and Case File Presents, I'm Octavia McHenry. You know your father, like, is that just, you think, a normal reaction for him, how he would have reacted in a situation like this? I'm talking to Oscar about the contentious fact that when search and rescue arrived, many hours after Jeanette was last seen, Eduardo kept working on the motorhome. Let me explain to you that actually, they didn't see the whole thing. Nobody was with my dad in the immediate um, aftermath of when it happened. He was with me in the car when we were actually looking for her. And he's usually not the type of person to lose his cool. And his voice would break at times saying, this time we really lost her. She's really lost a sense of desperation, something that he's not used to, something that we train ourselves as physician. Um, you know, you come in an emergency room with a dead child, I've seen it too many times. I'm not going to cry in tears with you. I'm not, I'm not meaning to be rude. Um, he's the same way. It's a seasoned physician. You just don't, you train yourself not to lose your cool. But he lost it. He lost it up there and nobody saw that. And the, the, when the investigators got that, I'm pretty sure he had already gotten a hold of his emotions and said, okay, let's let the investigators do their job. He was busy actually trying to get his RV unstuck at that time. But he, 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 he lost his cool. He was behaving like a father that lost his daughter. Nobody saw that, only me. What do you make of that? This is Sochi. Oh, oh, uh, I actually wasn't aware of that. Because um, oh. I don't know what they saw, but I know what I saw when I saw my dad. Um, distress. I see that and I know what that looks like. I don't know if they would be able to to identify that. What does your dad look like when he's in distress? It doesn't look that? like it at all. <laughs> he focuses on what's necessary, mm -hmm. what he can do, what he can't do. He hides it behind a serious face, and that's it. That's what it looks like. Just because somebody shows emotion doesn't mean it's real either. But Eduardo told me that he did quite a bit of crying, just not in front of strangers. When we got there, I remember my dad. He just 
we stopped for for a second. We pulled off to the side of the road, and he just lost it. He was just crying, and it just killed me. Like it just tore me apart because he was he just started bawling. I mean, that's not like my dad, but he was just so scared. And, Had you uh, ever seen him crying before? Yeah, when the accident. That's those are the only two times that I've ever seen my dad cry. The day after Jeanette disappeared, I was told early on by the people that worked on the case that while search and rescue tried to find Jeanette, Eduardo was cooking for the group of people that had joined them for the weekend. I asked Oscar and Xochitl about that, too. You want to keep yourself busy when you're trying to keep your cool? You don't want to sit around and think about things because your mind will drive you crazy. Your daughter's missing. They're not letting you go up to search for yourself. And at that point in time, so many things start to run through your mind. What happened? Did she really get abducted? And if she did, who could have done it? The only thing you can do is keep yourself busy. I did the same thing. I would think that he's just trying to keep busy so that the anxiety or whatever doesn't consume him. But my dad also, he processes things when he's doing stuff. I'm the same way. Eduardo himself told me, I always have to be doing something. I can't be idle. Finally, I spoke to Laura Richards about this. So in some senses, I wasn't surprised to hear that Eduardo was making use of his time by cooking, for example, that other people were coming. And therefore, sometimes if you're a busy person and when something's on your mind or really stressing you, you divert into something kind of mundane and inane or try and help other people so that you're not having to be in that moment. And the fact is, on a physical level, just looking at him, there's no way he can be helpful in the search. So finding a way for him to be helpful to other people probably makes much more sense. Okay. He's a GP, so even on that level, he's gone into that job to help people. As a pastor, you've gone into that job to help people. Mm -hmm. So it's not a stretch. It might look a bit weird. I I can imagine his flipping burgers or whatever on on the barbecue. I asked Eduardo how he thinks the confusion regarding him seeing Jeanette in the side view mirror could have come about. His answers are laced with sighs of frustration. Well, if you look at the report, they, they were writing everything to favor what they had already put in their mind, that we were involved with somehow, in some way, doing something to my daughter, which is preposterous. In other words, Eduardo is alleging search and rescue were biased. He thinks that once they had formed a judgment of the family, every piece of information coming their way was interpreted against the family. I said, no, they're trying to help us because they, they believe the, what, what we're saying. Uh, but in, in fact, even though they were looking, they were just thinking that it would have been us. And there's no question that there was some bad blood between the Castrayans and Search and Rescue. Some of the reports reveal the annoyance they felt towards Jeanette's family. The inability to get a scent item, for one, was a major cause of frustration for Search and Rescue. With my limited knowledge of Spanish and the help of Jeanette's other brother, Fabian, whom you haven't heard from yet, I pressed Lydia about the big question mark that is the freshly laundered scent items. Someone went to the house and retrieved shoes. Shoes. And um, her pillowcase. uh But then when they brought them back, they smelled like, you know, fabric softener. So they had just been washed? No? No. She had used them after they had been washed last. They weren't just freshly cleaned. 
Had they just been washed? I don't recall having washed them. I don't remember whether I changed them. Was it shoes or what? It was a pair of shoes and a pillowcase from her bed. So we brought back a shoe and a pillowcase. Okay. Because in the report it said that that both of them were not usable because they just smelled strongly like fabric softener as if they had just been washed. Yeah, uh, I don't Sometimes, Fabian, before leaving, I'd wash everything. I don't remember. She's saying it's possible that she doesn't remember if she washed everything before they came to the camping trip. Like she would have washed her bedding, like that morning before going. That she would have done laundry or something. Is that something that you would have done? That's something you would have done? Washed the beds and then gone on a trip, you know, Um, that morning? Maybe. I don't remember. Aside from the items retrieved from their home in Las Cruces, the family provided plenty of scent items belonging to Jeanette right from inside the motorhome. These were all items she had used. The problem is Lydia touched all of them. Much like you would do for a young child, she folded all of Jeanette's clothes and straightened up her personal space so that all of Jeanette's personal belongings had Lydia's scent on them too. Which leads me to another point. In this one, you won't find in the reports. Lydia told me that on that very first night, one of the dog handlers accidentally gave the dog one of her scent items instead of Jeanette's. It was a blanket. And before she could tell the dog handler, she had already held the blanket to the dog's nose. Los perros iban al carro de Oscar porque the dogs went to Oscar's car because I'd been in there when we drove to the top. And when the lady asked for a scent item for Jeanette, she grabbed the wrong one. I told her, not this one, but she gave it to the dog anyway. And I think the dog was tracking my scent. So those canines that tracked the scent to Oscar's car in the early stages could have just been tracking Lydia all along. After all, before search and rescue arrived, she had just been inside Oscar's car looking for Jeanette. The bottom line is this. It's not clear who scent the canines were tracking so it's impossible to draw any relevant conclusion based on their behavior. Ultimately, the language barrier and the presence of so many people at Rustler Park confused matters because people were inadvertently giving different accounts of what happened, which contributed to the growing frustration and suspicion of the search volunteers. And remember when sheriff deputies told me that if it had been their daughter, they would have never left that campground? Jeanette's family left the campground just two days after she disappeared. On Sunday night, they had to come to the conclusion that uh, she was not there. There's no way she was on that mountain. She had been lost and possibly abducted. So they said, if somebody abducted her and wants money or wants whatever, they're going to want to contact you guys. There's no cell phone coverage up here. You guys go back down. There's nothing else to do in the mountain. She's not in the mountain. We got convinced. We were like, okay, yes, all right, it's an abduction. Let's go back down. Sunday night, everybody, the church members, everybody came back down. And indeed, listening to their recorded interviews with detectives confirms what Oscar says, that they did advise him to return back to civilization and that whatever happened to Jeanette, she was likely no longer there. And besides, they didn't return home to New Mexico. They stayed in the area for at least three more days. They distributed flyers anywhere they could think of, 
contacted major media channels, and were very active on social media too. What's really surprising too, is that where some search and rescue volunteers noted that the family didn't appear concerned or wasn't helpful, in fact, according to the Castrayans, the opposite was true. They felt like their search was superficial and that they weren't covering much ground. This is Sochi again. I was just making sure that I that I absorbed every single last word that they were saying because I wanted to know, you know, how well are they doing their job? But then again, I also didn't know how well they're doing their job because I don't know their job. You know what I mean? The family said they wished they could be more involved, but were being stood down by the volunteers who blocked their access to certain areas altogether. So trusting because I had to, because I didn't really have a choice, but at the same time, not really trusting and just really wanting and, and wishing that we could be more involved. Fabian told me one of the volunteers said they wouldn't leave until they found Jeanette. And yet the following day, the volunteer was gone, which was very disappointing to the family. After the search and rescue mission was unsuccessfully completed, the family returned to Russell Park several times. Anytime they could get a little search party together, they'd gather their friends and family and try to cover as much ground as possible. They were looking, essentially, for Jeanette's remains. They did this on at least three or four occasions over the years. On one of these trips, in August 2015, the Castrions showed me photos of a large group of their friends where they mapped out and searched all nearby mine shafts. To no avail, of course. And then there's the issue of the 911 call having been placed so late. I don't know why Jeanette's parents didn't call for help sooner. Perhaps they thought that Oscar, who they had been expecting earlier but was instead running late, would find her. Oscar is fast, he's athletic, he could cover far more ground in a shorter amount of time. Or perhaps it had to do with the fact that Jeanette had wandered off and gotten lost in the past. Here's Oscar again. She's been lost many times before. And we always found her, okay? Because she just wandered off, it wasn't something new. So I was, when I got there, I was like, okay, well, it's gonna be another episode. We're gonna go screaming around and we'll find her. Like many, I thought it was possible to place a 911 call anytime, anywhere, even where there is no signal. But Oscar had told me he wasn't able to. And this is significant because having to drive down the mountain to place that call added another 45 minutes to the timeline. As it turns out, mobile networks in the United States are required by law to connect any call to 911 so that you can make an emergency call even if you are in an area where your specific service provider doesn't have coverage. So if your phone can't connect to a wireless tower on your network, it will allow emergency calls by connecting to a tower that isn't part of that carrier's network. Unless you're in an area where there's no signal of any type. In other words, an area that isn't covered by any network. In that case, you won't even be able to make a call to 911. And that's the type of place that Rustler Park appears to be, completely off the grid. But then again, as you heard from the previous episode, Jeanette's father claims that he was able to place some phone calls from Rustler Park on the day Jeanette disappeared, which I've never been fully able to explain. I inquired about the difficult aspects of caring for Jeanette. Like I mentioned in the beginning, the theory goes, for those who believe Jeanette's family did away with her, that they did so because she was becoming increasingly more difficult to care for. She was a 250-pound 12-year-old that you're trying to say, if you're in the restaurant, don't go away because we need you to stay here or you could get lost or something like that. And at times, 
She didn't like to be told what to do and she would actually take off. Or she would start to go to other tables and actually bother people to where they would complain to management. So it was, it was difficult to control her. Being out in public with her is, was a real big deal. And at times you had to actually to kind of almost get aggressive with her not spank her or anything like that, but at least physically restrain her from going to other places. So sometimes it got physical. Yeah. To worse. And she would push and she would shove and she would scratch. But, you know, you just hold your cool. You know, what are you going to do? It's, it's somebody that has a, a brain injury. You're not going to get aggressive back with her or punch her or hit her. You just try and control the situation as much as you can. Sometimes talking would work. Sometimes physical restraints would work. Sochil told me that, yes, the burden on Lydia to take care of Jeanette was high. And on top of that, Lydia was increasingly responsible for her husband, Eduardo, too, because his health had been declining. But although they never verbalized it, Sochil believes it was implied that one day, Jeanette would go to live with Fabian and his family, since they got along with Jeanette the most. And they were already used to taking care of Jeanette on the rare occasion when Lydia needed some time off. And then there's the family's stellar reputation. In Las Cruces, New Mexico, a city of 100,000 with a small-town vibe and a predominantly Hispanic population, Eduardo Castrejon is a respected member of the community. Here's Detective Hoke. When I was in Las Cruces um, talking with the sergeant and detectives of their major crimes unit, I asked them a lot about this family. They were familiar with the father. runs a very, very good practice. He's known in Las Cruces that if you don't have insurance or something to take care of, you know, you just brought your little girl in or your little boy because he had flu or something, a lot of times he just will take care of it. And that's pretty kind in these days and times. What I'm getting at is he was talked of highly even by them. Las Cruces Police Department weren't familiar with Eduardo's son, Oscar, also a physician. But they added that the only interactions they'd ever had with the family were two instances relating to Jeanette wandering off or getting lost. Eduardo's father was a missionary, and he was raised traveling. And, as often happens, that is a lifestyle he created for his own children, too. He taught them to appreciate the outdoors, and camping was something that they had always done as a family. Even Jeanette's brain injury didn't stop them from traveling the world. In spite of Jeanette's limitations, she tagged along with them everywhere. They always preferred remote locations like Rustler Park, they explained, because going to crowded campsites didn't feel like camping at all. Besides, the Castrions didn't seem to be worried about being scrutinized by investigators, and they don't get upset when questions are asked of them. Probably the next morning, it was like dawned on me, as they're starting to ask questions of us. She's missing. She, now they really know that she's missing, and I'm pretty sure they're going to want to rule out that we hadn't done something to her first. I was like, well, let's just let them do their job, whatever, do just so long as you find our sister, rule out whatever you want to. What would you say to people who have suspicion towards your family? It's valid. I mean, if I were an investigator, I would do the same thing. Um, it's not something for us to take personally. And regardless of, of, of due process and whatnot, I know my family and, you know, the thought that it would have been any of us is just non-existent. It's just absurd, you know, like... No. <laughs> Not only did the Castrioms wish to be more involved in the search, but they tried to assist the investigation, too. And they're the ones who provided detectives with their first real investigative lead. It was four days after Jeanette disappeared. 
Fabian, Xochitl, and her boyfriend, William, were driving around the Chiricahuas looking for any clue, trying to speak to any witnesses they saw, asking if they knew anything, saw anything. And they came across two people by the side of the road. They were standing near a parked car, a white pickup truck with a camper shell. Interesting. The very same type of vehicle Eduardo saw at Rustler Park soon after Jeanette disappeared. There was a white male who looked to be in his 60s standing next to a very young girl who was unusually thin and appeared to be no older than 15. The man was about 5'7 and 130 pounds. He had long brown hair below his shoulders. Once again, another detail that matches a description of the man Eduardo saw at Rustler Park. He was very slender, wore cut-off shorts, sandals, and no shirt. They pulled up to speak with them. Fabian noted that the man was overly chatty and appeared nervous. Fabian was trying to get a good view of the truck, but it seemed to him that the man intentionally positioned himself between them and his pickup truck to obstruct the view of the camper shell and the license plate. And then there was the girl. It seemed strange to them that a teenager would be in the company of a much older man, and she seemed uncomfortable as she stood quietly to the side. Sochil tried to make eye contact with her. She smiled at her. The young woman smiled back awkwardly and quickly lowered her gaze to the ground. That made Sochil think something was wrong. Sochil's boyfriend, William, then stepped off the vehicle and looked around the truck, and that's when the girl positioned herself in front of it. He wasn't sure if she was trying to obstruct his view or trying to tell him something, but couldn't. He made small talk with her instead and asked her where she was from. She said she was from Tucson and the man was from Portal. At some point, William was able to take two photos of them along with the truck and its license plate with his phone. In the meantime, Fabian was still speaking with the male individual from inside his car. Before wrapping up the conversation, the man told Fabian something strange. I remember what he said was, if it's God's will, that it was, she was going to be found, and that was the end of that. What did you think of that? It was, well, at that point I was kind of, I thought it was weird, and it's probably still weird now. If it's God's will, she will be found. If it isn't God's will, well, then she won't. It felt to Fabian that that comment was taunting and insincere. He said it was as if he knew they couldn't do anything, couldn't search his truck. Fabian informs detectives of this bizarre encounter. He provides them the photos of the male and female and of their license plate. He had no idea if these individuals had anything to do with Jeanette's disappearance. But in any case, the couple with the white pickup certainly matched a description from his father's statement, and they seemed to be hiding something. So Fabian told Detective Hoke he believed the man should be questioned further and his car should be looked at. Detective Hoke looks up the license plates and traces them back to a man named Robert Flynn. This is not his real name. I will explain why later on. He finds an address for Robert Flynn in the portal area. Hoke drives to that address. It's located in a remote forested area which cannot be seen from the roadway. And even though the white pickup is parked right on the premises, nobody answers the door. Although he couldn't confirm it at the time, Hoke got the sense that someone was inside the residence. He waited a while, but eventually he had no choice but to leave. Hoke enlists the help of U.S. Forest Service Special Agent Robinson for help in locating Flynn. A few days later, Agent Robinson tries the address again. Nobody answers the door, except this time, the vehicle isn't there. 
Agent Robinson then drove to the community mailboxes and noted that Flynn's was wired shut, as if he hadn't been using it for a long time. But a couple weeks later, Fabian calls with more information. Over the weekend, his family had returned to the area to distribute flyers and tried making contact with Flynn again. He said he spoke to the owner of a local bed and breakfast and was told Flynn hadn't been around those parts in years. Detective Hoke thinks the whole situation is highly unusual, that someone who lives in that town said Flynn hasn't been seen in years, when in fact there was proof he'd been in the area just a few weeks before. Hoke also thought it was suspicious in and of itself that, even though he firmly believed Flynn was inside his house, he didn't come out to talk to him. He thought perhaps Flynn knew something. In any case, he had no other leads. So Detective Hoke writes an affidavit requesting permission to search Flynn's house and truck, and the judge finds probable cause to serve the warrant. On July 14, 2015, almost a month to the day that Jeanette was last seen, Detective Hoke, Sergeant Parker, other detectives and DPS investigators execute the search warrant of Robert Flynn's home. The suspect isn't there, and neither is his pickup truck. They announced their presence outside, but there was no reply. So they struck the front door open. Although nobody was home, they saw evidence that Flynn did indeed live at that address. They looked for Jeanette, or any evidence of a crime. They found nothing. They took photographs, and when they were done, they left behind a copy of the warrant and secured the front door shut with a wire. A few days later, detectives managed to interview Robert Flynn, who had apparently returned home to the warrant. He accepts to be interviewed, and detectives speak to him outside his home. Flynn is an eccentric man, an antique collector. He's used this cabin in the woods as a second home since 1980. His primary residence is in Tucson. Arizona's second-largest city. During the interview, he's both assertive and soft-spoken. These guys are driving around the mountain with nothing to see, and I'm the only guy there, so I'm the most suspicious person they probably met all day. I was probably the only person. Well, I... Robert Flynn denies being in the area of Rustler Park on June 19th, the day of Jeanette's disappearance. He says he believes he was in Tucson, but four days after, he was seen and photographed by Xochitl, Fabian, and William at Rustler Park. So Detective Hoke tries to establish a timeline. So if you were in Tucson on that day, when do you think you came back? You know, basically I've got a pretty open schedule. I don't really keep track. Flynn says he can't be sure which days he was there. His carefree lifestyle and lack of a fixed schedule makes it so that he comes and goes from his Tucson home to his cabin in the woods whenever he pleases. He doesn't keep track of the weekdays, he says, because he doesn't have to. And Father's Day weekend isn't a significant holiday for him. Detectives show Flynn a copy of that photo that was taken by Jeanette's family. They ask him who that girl was. This is a friend of mine, Vicky from California, who was driving through and was with me that day. And she almost looks like a child. How old is she? She's uh, actually 26. She's very, very thin. I think she has, you know, some health problems or whatever. You know, so. Where's Vicky at now? I have no idea. She's so we just, couldn't question Vicky if uh... she just she just left. You know, she was here for a couple of days camping, and then she left. You know. So. Do you, do you have an address for her if we needed to speak to her? Nope, I really don't. Know. She was kind of a casual friend. What is Vicky's last name? I'm not sure what her last name is. I'm sorry. You know, it's like uh -huh. she's a very casual friend of mine, and. You know, like I said, I got a lot of, you know, a lot of friends who, you know, stopped by and everything. And 
Could you help me out then in a way? I'd say I'd be happy to help you, sir. I really would like to speak with that young lady you were with. I, if I can, if I have no idea to get in touch with her, if I go to Tucson, I could ask some of her friends uh, if uh, you know they they have her phone number or anything. But I have no way of getting. Can in you touch give with me her. the friends' she, names in Tucson where I could follow up on it? She basically was driving through going to California, and uh, she just said she wanted to stop by, and she came back. Let me ask you this, sir. Yeah, sir. How did she get a hold of you? She called me on the phone. Wonderful. Cell phone? I don't have a cell phone, sir. She called you on the house phone? House phone, I don't have, yeah. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Do you know when that was that she called you? No, I'm not sure. Sometime in June? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. And you said she was up here for a couple days? A couple days. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Do you remember what part of California she's from? No, I don't. I think maybe Northern California. I'm not sure. You know, so. How'd you, how'd you meet her? About Northern California. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. How did you meet her? How'd you meet Vicky? Oh, I met her in Tucson. Uh, you know, you know, a, a while back. I don't know. You know okay. <laughs> how did she? What did she drive up here in, sir? Uh, she, she had a car. What kind of car is this? Uh, gosh. I don't know. She parked down. A lot of people parked down at the across the creek here. So, so you never so. even saw it when you were here? No. It was down there. It was a white, white small car, white subcompact or something like that. So. Your friends in Tucson that know her, uh -huh. is there any way of putting me in contact with them? Uh, you know, I really don't know how to get in touch with them right now. See, I see a lot of people in Tucson like it. You know, I go to the <clears throat> like the the uh, the place I shop, food conspiracy and other things. These are like casual friends of mine. You know, there's not like I go to their house and. Uh, so you don't know where they live? No, I don't. A lot of people, yeah, just like you. you know, you've got a certain group of, of friends you're tight with, and then you've got other friends who just. Well, I don't want to sound obnoxious, but I know where all my friends live. <laughs> I don't meet them in stores and only go to stores. I oh, I go. I, I, I know where my buddies live and people that stay with me. Can you understand how to us that sounds odd? I understand. It sounds very odd. Flynn says he wants to help out in any way he can. Yet, detectives note he is evasive and uncooperative. He makes a million excuses as to why he can't give detectives any details that could help them identify and question Vicky. He says he doesn't know her last name, doesn't have her phone number, doesn't know where she works, or even how they met. They try to convince Flynn to take a voice stress analysis test, but he refuses. And it's just one of those things as to where when we do stuff like this and we can eliminate a person, it lets us concentrate every effort we have somewhere else. I understand, right. And, and, and I'd be, like I said before, I'd be happy to cooperate in every way I can, except I don't want to take a VPS. I'm sorry, you know. What about a polygraph? I don't want to take any of that stuff. I'm, you know, I've got nothing to do with any of this. I've lived here for like, you know, 35 years. I've never had a problem, you know. All I was doing was driving on the mountain. And so I really don't want to do that. Throughout the interview, they ask so many times that it becomes painfully uncomfortable to listen to. One of the things that we're trying to do is exclude you. I understand, right, yeah. And... And that's those types of things would do that. Yeah, that's why I invited you. And 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 I know I'm going to keep going back to it. And I know you're you're yeah. you're you're hesitant to it. But that VSA. Yeah, I don't want to do a VSA. I'm sorry. You know, maybe you know, I'm I'm just not interested at all. But surprisingly, Flynn was able to prove that he was indeed in Tucson when Jeanette disappeared, and so he was ruled out pretty quickly thereafter. Still, the question remains: Why was he so uncooperative with detectives? And as far as I know, 
his friend Vicky was never identified or tracked down. And his vehicle, a 1994 white Toyota pickup with a white camper shell, to my knowledge, it was never searched. I tried reaching Robert Flynn for an interview. When I found one of the phone numbers associated with his name, it went to voicemail. The recorded message said, truth remains forever living in the joy of love. That sentence is a quote from the book, A Course in Miracles, some sort of guide to achieving spiritual transformation. But it gave me instant chills because it rang so similar to that cryptic, fatalistic sentence Flynn told Fabian. If it's God's will, she will be found. Eventually, I found another number for him and spoke to Mr. Flynn over the phone. He declined an interview and asked that his name not be made public, which is why I used a pseudonym for this podcast. He says he knows nothing of Jeanette's disappearance and that when her family drove up, he was simply looking at the view with his friend Vicky. He also told me that once he was able to prove that he was in Tucson at the time Jeanette disappeared, he never heard from the sheriff's office again. There's no question Flynn was evasive, but whatever the reason, there's no indication it had anything to do with Jeanette Castrillon's disappearance. Here's what's interesting, though. Three months after Jeanette disappeared, another person went missing from Rustler Park. A man named Larry Cosden. He parked his car at the campground, went hiking by himself, and was never seen again. Coming up next on The Labyrinth. Is that odd to be up at least an hour from in the middle of the night when it's raining with a female that he doesn't know and a little child? Is that odd? That's odd. I'll give you that. That's odd. There's no way my brother would have thought of suicide. He also had just purchased furniture. He was very excited about fixing up his living room. So you don't buy furniture and start fixing up your living room if you're planning on dying. <laughs> 